Hello, and welcome to We Read Theory, a podcast that delves into the most famous and some of the more niche works of leftist theory. This week, we're going to be taking a look at The State and Revolution by Vladimir Lenin. I'm Mark. And I'm Alex. And uh, for this week, I took a look at The State and Revolution by Vladimir Lenin. Um, in comparison to Kropotkin and The Conquest of Bread, I've got to say, something of a more difficult read. Um, a lot of references to a bunch of uh, his own contemporaries that um, might fall a little bit outside of your knowledge base if you're just breaking into leftist theory. Um, so we're really just going to be talking about what the main central ideas are as much as possible. Um, let's get right into it. The state and revolution serves to define the state and its role in the inevitable revolution Marx predicted. It can be a bit complicated to talk about because fundamentally, Lenin is arguing for an interpretation of Marx. So there's a bit of a game of telephone going on. Um, you know, Marx says something, people interpret it, and then Lenin is ultimately saying, no, this is the correct interpretation of Marx. And that's kind of how he frames his argument. Uh, for simplicity's sake, I'm going to refer to the arguments made as Lenin's own, but keep in mind that Lenin is also arguing that these points are the correct interpretation of Marx's work. So what is the state? According to Lenin, the state is a body that exists outside and above society, which oppresses one class in favor of the other, or another. Uh, it follows from this that the philosophy of the state and the form it takes is dictated by the class it empowers. In both Lenin's time and our own, this class is the bourgeoisie. The form that the state takes is the capitalist democratic republic, and money is power. Even though it's formally a democracy, it's incapable of accurately representing the interests of the people because money is so closely tied to people's ability to enfranchise themselves. You know, media, organizing in public places, and even the act of voting all have some kind of financial barrier that might keep people from being able to make their voices heard. Lenin argues that the revolution must swiftly and completely smash and destroy the power of the state. And in this way, he agrees with anarchists like Kropotkin. Uh, however, those who've listened to episode one will remember that Kropotkin argued that we should socialize production and consumption right on the first day uh, and then destroy all vestiges of state power instantly. Lenin argues that the state must first be replaced with another body of authority, which Marx dubbed the dictatorship of the proletariat. This is a term anyone mildly familiar with leftist theory should be somewhat familiar with. Uh, it's important to note that this isn't a dictatorship in the sense that we know it, where one guy like a Stalin, for example, would just uh, control everything. Rather, it's an institution that wields state-like power, but for the purposes of empowering the proletariat and destroying class differences. In this sense, it's not really a state in the same way as the bourgeoisie state is, because it doesn't mediate and stabilize class conflicts. Uh, instead of a standing army, which is necessary to keep down the masses and is seen pretty much in every bourgeoisie republic today and back then, the power of the dictatorship of the proletariat is enforced by the armed collective citizenry. And rather than having pri privileged bureaucrats, the dictatorship of the proletariat pays the executors of its policy workmen's wages and kind of makes sure that they're seen as equals to regular workmen. Uh, and rather than a talking shop parliament that meets and dictates policy and then just kind of sits there, the whatever would kind of be the governing body in a representative sense would also be a working body that dictates policy, but then also 
executes it actively. This body would be highly centralized and it would be highly democratic, more democratic than even a democratic republic would be. And it's really important that this dem- that this democratic election of like these sort of representatives uh, would be revocable at any time. That's really, really important to Lenin. All this might kind of sound like there's still some kind of a state that's just kind of not a state by technicality because it's technically promoting equality instead of like one class being oppressed by the other. Uh, Lenin would agree with that. This all constitutes what he would call the first stage of communism, or also what Marx would call the first stage of communism. Uh, You could also call it socialism. From the first day that the dictatorship of the proletariat is established, what remains of state-like power, which would be used at this point to make sure that the bourgeoisie stays down and ultimately destroys the class of the bourgeoisie because people can't really own the means of production anymore over time. Um, And so state-like power begins to slowly wither away and become unnecessary. Uh, Once the bourgeoisie has been suppressed out of existence, it becomes possible to socialize consumption so that each contributes according to their ability and consumes according to their need. This ultimate state where both production and consumption is socialized is the higher form of communism. That is the ultimate goal of, you know, Marx and Lenin and ultimately like real true believer anarchists as well. Just the way of getting there is really what's different. Lastly, I want to touch on the ways in which Lenin believes Marx's teachings had been twisted by those who he calls opportunists. Uh, He cites his sites in particular on a man named Karl Kotsky who was a contemporary of Lenin's and something of a Marxist idol at the time. His main issue with Kotsky was that he didn't really address the role of the state directly in his writings for the most part. For Lenin, this is totally unacceptable because it leaves the question open to opportunists who would wish to preserve the state in its current form. In later works, Kotsky, according to Lenin, outright states that the proletariat can seize power without destroying the state. This is also unacceptable to Lenin for the same reason, because the state is a tool for oppression of one class by another. So if you wish to end class antagonism and destroy class in general and create that real higher form of communism, you have to destroy the state. It can't be present there. With that, uh, are there any basic questions that you have? So, yeah, I actually have a couple questions. Um, First, the way you said um, there's no standing army, but it's the people in general. Um, I guess there'd be no commanding officer in that case, so it'd be kind of um, like mob rule, essentially. Lenin doesn't get super, doesn't really get specific at all in like the organization of like any kind of armed force. Uh, but you got to understand how he's using terms. A lot of the terms that he uses are defined by their usage to oppress one class by another. A standing army is a good example of this. A standing army is a body that is controlled by the ruling class to um you know to do a bunch of things but one of those things is to make sure that the masses stay down it's really actually where the force behind state power comes from so the difference between a standing army and just the armed populace is that the armed populace is disorganized or organized in a way so that it can't help but represent the will of the majority and of the masses as opposed to the will of some privileged minority so if Lenin saw the U.S. Army today, he'd be like, those are state-sponsored terrorists. Oh, 100%. Absolutely. Oh. Okay. I'm not sure that he would use the word terrorists, but yes, he would. He would, certainly he would say that that is the armed 
uh, part of the state that enforces it pow- its power. I think he would also throw the police in there as well. I think we would both agree, right? That makes sense to me. We all know that I don't <laughs> like cops, Mark. This isn't a, this isn't a new new yeah. theory. Yeah, yeah. So so um, yeah. Uh, that's the big that's the big difference between like a standing army and the armed populace is kind of who it's incentivized to protect. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing there's also no borders. If there's no nobody to air codes protect them. Well, let's keep in mind. Let's keep in mind that we're talking about a transit. That when we talk about the dictatorship of the proletariat, we're talking about a transitory, like kind of state of humanity. Um, it's more akin to socialism than communism. And in this transitory state, state-like power does exist in some sense, and so there is room for borders in uh, that in that kind of uh, once you're kind of moving past um, that dictatorship of the proletariat portion. Um, I would say it depends more on exactly how worldwide the revolution actually is. If it's a worldwide revolution, then there isn't necessarily any need for borders. Uh, Borders are kind of an expression of state power. To be honest, it's tough to get super specific when it comes to borders or the worldwide um, quality of the revolution, just because that's not really something that Lenin goes too deep into in state and revolution specifically. So uh, that might be something that we need to address on a different podcast entirely. Gotcha. Okay, so that's the fun question. But um, jumping into the actual, like uh, what you got, um, what you got into at the end, this how kind of how Parliament would work. Okay. Um, I did really like the idea that, um, well, I guess it's communism, so any sort of governing body is going to have to be um, uh, also working class. But I did like like the idea that they have to live through the policies they enact. But um, yeah, is that correct? Well, yeah, for sure. Uh, and to be even more specific, um, what we have right now is is we have kind of the the state exists in two ways in the sense that we have our parliaments, which legislate, but then the execution of those policies that they create is done mostly by this extensive bureaucracy that works mostly behind the scenes. And the actual power of the state kind of falls into the hands of the people who make the decisions on the ground, you know, you know, random bureaucratic officials. Uh, Lenin is obviously not a huge fan of this. He doesn't see it as very democratic. And so he wants the parliament not just to be, you know, working class to accept workmen's wages, which he does want. But furthermore, he wants the parliament to also execute policies that it enacts. Um, So kind of take on the role of that, some of the role of that bureaucracy, as well as the role of the parliament. And in that sense, it stops being a parliament in the bourgeoisie state kind of sense. A lot of a lot of you'll you'll notice kind of a pattern in uh, these suggestions that he's making is he's saying, oh, we're going to do things that are kind of similar to how the bourgeoisie state does it. And we're going to maybe keep a little piece of that power, how they used it. But the way in which we do those things makes it fundamentally not like the state and all these things different from how the things work in the state. So states can have a little power. We don't do memes on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, my bad. Um, In a real sense, you also said um, anyone can be removed at any time. Yes. And that sounds like it would go over really well and everyone would just be really cool. And they'd just be like, OK, I guess I'll leave now. So, yeah, to be a little bit more specific, uh, people could be removed democratically. So that would be kind of written into the system is that if you're democratically elected, um, your democratic mandate 
can be rescinded by your, you know, whoever your constituents uh, are. Um, he's not so much a federalist in that you would have like concentric levels of like authority. He wants it very centralized because he's very wary of like, he's very, he's very wary of how reactionary subdivisions can be. You know, in the United States, we're really familiar with states' rights as a refrain for reactionaries to use when they when they go, okay, well, if I can't enact my reactionary policies in general, if I can just get, you know, the power of the state to be more chopped up into little pieces, then I can enact them at least in this local area. So he's really for centralism in that regard, specifically to prevent that kind of reactionaryism in uh, its constituent parts. But he's also really into the communes, um, which would be in even more um, local than like maybe like a state you would have in like the United States. So and and the central democratic body would represent those communes kind of directly. And they would be represented from the ground up, sending their representatives to the central governing body, so to speak, um, rather than having some kind of like intermediary government that watches over a bunch of communes and might dictate things down to them. But a commune isn't, um, I guess, tied to a specific location. A commune, yeah, I think a commune would be tied to a specific location. So it, it would be like states in that sense? Or? Yeah, but it's like, but it's like, instead of like many concentric circles of power, you've got the central democracy, and then you've got people's localities. You don't have these like intermediary things like state oh, governments. So we wouldn't have representatives and senators, we just have, it, we, we definitely wouldn't have a president is what you're saying. Oh, we wouldn't have a, I, 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 I would imagine we wouldn't have a president, but once again, like, Lenin would consider these, like, policy wonk really specifically detailing the um, structure of the governing body as kind of a utopian fantasy. Like, we don't really know. Mm -hmm. And it's, and it, it would be silly for us to pretend that we can know. The That's, you know, that's for the people to decide when they have their inevitable revolution. So I'm guessing he wants this to be a worldwide revolution because, you know, this is leftist theory. So it's very ut uh, yeah, utopian he, and um, optimistic. Well, he doesn't he doesn't talk too much about the worldwide revolution in like or the revolution being worldwide, particularly in the state and revolution specifically. Knowing what we know about Lenin um, outside of this particular work, I think it's pretty safe to say that, yeah, he would prefer a worldwide revolution. Yeah, so we wouldn't say how we'd represent ourselves to other nations or defend ourselves against other nations because everybody yes. is going to be involved in this. Yes, but keep in mind, once again, that um, some form of state power does continue to exist in a sense, which um, if you need to defend yourself from without, that's kind of how you might be able to um, do so using what it remains of state power. The state only withers as it becomes unnecessary completely. Okay. So speaking about defending yourself, what is his view on, um, I guess, I, I, I can kind of assume what his view on arming the proletariat would be before oh, the revolution? Very positive. Very necessary. Very, very positive, very necessary. Absolutely. I mean, for, for him, the revolution is a naturally violent act. He's actually, um, when he talks about opportunists or Philistines, one of his big gripes with them in general is this idea that you can use the state apparatus and electoralism, parliamentarianism to bring about any serious kind of revolutionary change. Uh, we talked about how Kapotkin um, learned lessons from the past revolutions, 1848, 1871, 
And his two big lessons that he takes away from those two revolutions in Lenin's case is that from 1848, he learns that, you know, you have to kind of destroy bourgeoisie power um, in order to have any serious kind of like revolutionary progress. Otherwise, you're just recreating class antagonism in another form. And in from 1871, his main takeaway, his main lesson is that you have to destroy state power altogether. You have to smash the state, destroy it, and replace it with something else entirely. In this case, this is what he calls the dictatorship of the proletariat. Gotcha. So he'd really be pissed off with the whole bureaucratic dance of impeaching a president. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously he doesn't talk about American impeachment processes in particular, but I think it's a safe interpretation of the work to say that, yeah, he would say, like, this is ridiculous. Um, if a president has lost his democratic mandate, then he should be, then the people should be able to rescind him his mandate on the, in the official sense, you know, without having to do all this song and dance. I, I, I do think that that's a fair interpretation of it. And kind of um, jumping off that in a way, I know with Kropotkin, we talked about the days, like, like the immediate action following the revolution um, was to, you know, gather like yeah. bread, like expropriate get, bread, expropriate housing, expropriate clothing, all the basic yeah. necessities. And yeah, so th this is actually this this um gets into what is really like the main difference between like the kind of Marxist and the anarchist view of the revolution. For the anarchists, you seize the means of production, and then you destroy state power, and you socialize all consumption. You know, you pass out bread to all who need it, to, from each according to his ability, to each according to his need, day one. That's like the anarchist view of it. The Marxist view is a little bit more gradual. Um, so day one, the, the, the event of the revolution is smash state power, seize the means of production. So you socialize production from each according to his ability, but you don't necessarily immediately go for that socialized consumption model where everyone gets just what they need by virtue of needing it. You have some kind of transitory period where you might still have market forces working. You might still have businesses in some sense, not, not really in the sense that they exist today, but in some sense. And you might have people paid in some kind of labor voucher so that you can, you know, you ensure that people are paid for their work, which is already more fair than capitalism, in which people's uh, labor value is exploited, mm -hmm. where people's labor value is exploited. That kind of socialized consumption comes as the state withers away and as like the need for people to like be all protective of like what they've made and what they've earned um kind of withers away right i guess over like gradual period of years yeah it could be period of years it could be many generations he, he says that it takes a long time but he doesn't give like an exact number of years I, like like the, the the main idea with a, a lot of these um philosophers we have talked about and will talked about mm -hmm. will will talk about um uh, is that they they um they think the means of production can be just stopped and started at will, like it's all all machines or something like that. Like even even in um, you know 1892, you know you're not going to be able to just stop and start, say like a farm or something like that. Like certain things have to keep going. It's it's not it's not just something that can be 
Like, in a revolution, is it going to take a day? If it, if it did, it'd be violent, probably destroy a lot yeah. of things in the process. Well, there'd be from a historical perspective, a lot of French revolutions have a habit of taking exactly three days. Three days? Three days. The Three Glorious Days is the name of the revolution in 1832, which took down the resurgent um, kind of ancien regime, the absolute monarchy, and replaced it with the um, constitutional July monarchy. Um, later in 1848, that particular French Revolution also took three days. And I can't remember right off the top of my head, and it's a possibly a ap apocryphal story where um, this woman saw all these people being agitated in the streets, and she goes out to buy enough provisions for three days. And when someone asks her why she's bought all this, she says, I have enough bread for three days. These things always take three days. Dude, the French are so fucking good at revolting. I swear <laughs> to God. Hey, if any of our listeners are yellow jacket protesters, if you want to uh, get interviewed on the pod or, you know, teach a seminar or something to teach the American people how to, you know, properly do one of these things, just like, let me know. But on, on a real note, that's, that, that's all I have right now. I feel like we've yeah. given a pretty good basis for it. I actually, I, actually did have, I actually did have one um, kind of concept that I want to end on. Which is something that I've noticed across a lot of uh, leftist theories. Something that I've that I kind of see joining all of these um, like plans for the revolution is this idea that capitalism is what, or, or or you know, the systems of state power and class antagonism are what make us do all these like really antagonistic to things to each other on an individual level. Um, I'm not necessarily saying that that's 100% untrue. But I just think it's important to to understand that a lot of these concepts rest on this idea that once you remove the necessity for the state to exist, once you remove like that class antagonism, you make sure that people are um, own the means of production collectively and are fundamentally seen as like pretty equal on a societal level that like our desire to antagonize each other is going to mostly go away or is going to become manageable to the degree that you don't really need state power. I don't want to necessarily say that that's untrue, but I just think that it's important to, to, to make it known that a lot of these um, ideas rest on that assumption. And that's a claim that while you can, while you can prove that people are products of their environment, and they 100% are, um, on some level, I do find that claim difficult to falsify and therefore difficult to prove at the same time. Yeah, I agree. That's an important thing to keep in mind. But once again, that's not untrue. It's just unfalsifiable. Mm -hmm. I, I'd love to see it proven right or proven wrong. I think yeah, it's interesting yeah. either way. Absolutely. I mean, that would that think of what we could do if we actually could like decide what is human nature because everyone just says it like they know. Mm -hmm. It's human nature under this one specific environment. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. That was that was episode two. Yeah, Damn. I hope anyone listening had a great time and join us next time for something completely different.